Well, go ahead and take a seat. Uh, quick introduction. My name's Alistair. I am the lead pastor here of St. Pete's. Uh, and I just need to add a couple of announcements. Uh, I was going to do two, but I'm going to do three. But I'm going to look this way because I was visiting a church uh, on sabbatical and someone recognized me and then was like, hey, Alistair's here. And I just wanted to like crawl under the communion table. Like, why is everyone pointing at me? Um, so I see someone I haven't seen in a while. You don't know who, but I'm not going to say their name, so I don't point them out. But it's really good to see you here at St. Peter's, whoever you may be that I have noticed from stage without looking at you. All of that aside, number two, uh, we had synod this past week. And as we mentioned, we are voting for a new bishop of our diocese. Uh, this is the person who oversees all of the Anglican Network of Canada. And uh, we elected uh, Dan Gifford of St. John's. He's now the co-adjutor bishop which is a fancy way of saying he's helping us transition as Charlie steps into retirement. Bishop Trevor will be resuming, or sorry, Bishop Gifford. I've got to get used to that. Uh, Dan Gifford, Bishop Gifford, will uh, be stepping into that role. It's also worth noting that Bishop Trevor, our Western bishop, who you all know, has retired. And so he'll be visiting every so often, but next year we'll be voting for Trevor's replacement as well. So lots of changes in the House of Bishops. Uh, you might be wondering how it impacts you, and the, the answer is it doesn't really. So um, just thought you might want to know. It impacts some of us, but it's good. Dan's a great guy, uh, and we're really, really excited to see him lead us through these troubling times. Lastly, I just want to thank Danielle, our treasurer, who gave an update about giving. Um, I think we just have to be really honest. Uh, the pandemic has changed things. It's changed our church. You can look around and see, like, we're not back to normal yet. We're not back or even resembling close to what we were pre-pandemic. And we might not get there. We don't know. Uh, there's still a lot of people meeting online, but just as many people have moved away during this time. Some people have decided it's time to move to a different church. There's a whole lot of different reasons people uh, are, are not yet back to worshiping with us on a regular basis. And we're seeing that reflected uh, in attendance. We're seeing that reflected in community groups. We're seeing that reflected in our giving. And so um, you might be wondering, well, where do we go from here? And the short answer is we keep moving toward Jesus. And we know he is our king. We know he's good. And we know we can trust him through uncertainty. And so when it comes to giving, when it comes to looking at a year-end goal, like 150 or so thousand dollars, first off, that's not totally unusual for us. If you've been around for a while, you know uh, in December, we usually see uh, somewhere between $100,000 to $130,000 uh, given in that month. So we're not too worried about that. Even if we miss that goal our, our goal, our leadership team has done a good job of stirring our resources over the past few years. We'll be okay. But I want to invite you to remember that through good times and bad, uh, the Lord invites us to give joyfully, to give generously, sacrificially, and within our means. And so I can't tell you what generosity and within your means looks like for the end of the year. All I can do is ask you to prayerfully consider what the Lord has given you, what it means for you to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially, and according to your means to help us meet this giving goal that we agreed to. And so our hope is that we'll get there and we'll see what the Lord can do through us. But please know we are, as a team, continuing to steward wisely the resources trusted to us. And we still have a vision for what Jesus can do in and through this particular people for this particular place at this time because Christ loves his church and he loves this city and he wants to use us to continue to proclaim his good news. So those are my three quick announcements.
Now let's get to the fun stuff, preaching. And it's not on here, so I have to find where my sermon is. There we are. So if you track the church calendar, which maybe some of you do, uh, we call today Christ the King Sunday. Alternatively, it is also named, you may have not known this, the Sunday next before Advent. So you can go the metaphorical route or the very literal route, whichever you prefer. Uh, In the church calendar tradition, we use this Sunday to reflect upon the kingship of Jesus, to prepare ourselves for a sustained reflection on the kingship of Jesus. Because all the way from Advent through Pentecost, we're going to look at Jesus as our king from a variety of angles. And so today is really the launching platform preparing us for the Christian New Year. Of course, the idea of a king in this day and in this age feels a little old-fashioned and antiquated. You know, despite being under Her Majesty's rule and her delightful tea, you know, our sense of government is so far removed from a monarchy. We're going to pick a, a democracy over a monarchy. We're going, to, we're going to choose a parliament over a crown, a collective over an individual, a committee, if we must, over a ruler. You know, we're not accustomed to being ruled by someone based off of their family lineage or supposed divine appointment. And so our present experiences within our society, they impact how we treat Jesus as king. Because we're so far removed from an actual monarchy, it makes the idea of Jesus being king more abstract, an idea more than a reality. So if you've been around the church for a while, if you've been exploring Christianity for any amount of time, inevitably you're going to hear these titles, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, the king of all creation, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So it shouldn't be a totally foreign confession to us. But how often do you stop and reflect upon what it really means? Do you think about how this confession should alter your allegiance? Well, that's what we're going to do today. Because if we're going to call Jesus king... And Lord, it has real ramifications for us. It necessitates that our lives will be reconfigured by this confession. In other words, our lives will change if we say Jesus is king. So let's dig into his kingship by exploring this pointed question he asks at the very end of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has sketched for us a vision of what the kingdom of God is all about. And then he turns to those who are listening and he asks This question in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So let's start here. What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but I immediately think of a butler named Jeeves with, you know, a towel draped over his arm. You could call him Bub if you prefer, but that's that's what I picture. Or if you're into historical dramas, you might be thinking of Downton Abbey and Lord Grantham. Not that I've ever watched every episode of that. But in these cases, you say Lord like you would say Sir. You show respect or it's a title. And this is true of the ancient world as well. In in both Jewish and Greco-Roman contexts, Lord can be a respectful greeting, a way of recognizing a superior, or it can even be a title. And it's most likely for the original audience listening to the sermons from Jesus, they would have heard it this way. They didn't have the full picture yet. So if you called Jesus Lord, 
It was out of respect for the student-teacher or disciple-rabbi dynamic. But we can't hear it from that vantage point. We hear it from a different vantage point. So that's not the only way we should hear it. Because very quickly in the early church, the title Lord came to being so much more than saying sir. In the Greco-Roman context, for example, the word Lord was used by emperors to express their claims of divinity. So to call Caesar Lord was not just to say, sir, it was to say, I'm addressing you as a divine king. In the Jewish context, the word Lord is frequently used in the place of the personal name Yahweh, the name of God. So anytime you see the Lord in the Old Testament, it's usually replacing the word Yahweh. It's a way of revering how the God of the universe made himself known in such a profoundly personal way. So to say Lord was to recognize this personal kingship of God. So when the early church starts calling Jesus Lord, it's a loaded confession. It's a way of recognizing that Jesus is God. And it's a personal declaration that Yahweh, the one true God, has not only revealed his name to his people, but has given his very heart in his eternal son to us in the person of Jesus, our Lord. But we have to recognize then that to call Jesus Lord then and now is a highly politicized confession. Because if Jesus is Lord... Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then every other king, every other ruler, every other political system, every other ideology must bend its knee to his rule and reign. This means that your ultimate allegiance cannot be to your nationality or to the party you like or its leader, to progressivism or conservatism or centrism. Your allegiance must first and foremost be to Jesus and the ways of his kingdom. And from that confession, you go to the king and you ask him for wisdom about how to navigate what it means to be a Canadian or an American, what it means to be affiliated with a particular party and its ideology, what it means to navigate the tensions of this world. But your allegiance cannot be first and foremost to those things, but to him and how he leads you and this community through those realities. If we're going to call him king, it changes things. If we're going to call Jesus Lord, it means we recognize his authority over our lives and we radically reconfigure our lives to reflect his priorities and not our own agendas. To confess Jesus is Lord means... We cannot be armchair theologians who have a lot of knowledge about Jesus and just play with it. It means that we cannot just have a flippant faith in which we believe all the right things, but stop there. Our allegiances never change. We just act as we've always acted and believe as everyone else believes in the world. Now take note of how Jesus frames this question, because it's rather uncomfortable, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Do you notice Jesus doesn't presume a positive default? 
He doesn't say, hey, you call me Lord. Great, you're going to do everything I say. He does not assume that our nature is automatic obedience. In fact, he says the opposite. Even if we call him Lord, Jesus presumes we will not follow through on doing what he says. He assumes there's a kind of spiritual impotence, a lukewarmness in which we want the convenience of a Lord who requires nothing of us save right thinking. If possible, I heard a pastor say this, we want a light version of Jesus, a fat-free version of Christianity, Christianity with one-third of the commitment. No wonder Jesus asks us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Should we be offended? I mean, how could we be? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we know this is a pretty fair indictment. In his book, The Alphabet of Grace, Frederick Buechner says something so poignant here. I think it resonates with our own experience. Here's what Buechner confesses. I'm a part-time novelist who also happens to be a part-time Christian. Christian, when certain things seem real and important to me, and the rest of the time, not Christian in any sense that I believe it matters much to Christ or anybody else. Any Christian who's not a hero, Leon Bloy wrote, is a pig, which is a harder way of saying the same thing. From time to time, I find a kind of heroism momentarily possible, a seeing, doing, telling of Christly truth. But most of the time, I'm indistinguishable from the rest of the herd that jostles and snuffles at the great trough of life. Part-time novelist, Christian, pig. Encouraging words from Frederick Buechner. But he puts the, his finger right on the issue, doesn't he? How can you read that and be like, oh, that's somebody else? Spiritual impotence, lukewarmness, part-time Christianity, indistinguishable from the masses, pigs at the great trough of life. It stings. But can you deny it? So instead of taking offense or getting defensive at this discomforting question, because not everything Jesus says is meant to comfort us, perhaps instead we should ask a question of ourselves. Why is it that we are capable of saying one thing and doing another? Why can we declare that Jesus is Lord, but not live as if Jesus is Lord? Well, I want to just try a quick thought experiment. Are you ready? What if Canada reverted to being a monarchy? Just throwing it out there. What if we stopped electing people who represented us got rid of the governor general, and just reverted to a king or queen who inherits the throne from now on by merit of their family lineage. What if we just dress up Rob Collis, give him a crown, call him king, and get on with letting him rule and reign over us? Any takers? Anyone game for a monarchy? Wow, Rob's interested, and someone really devout to the queen's interested, but not many of us. Why? Why don't we want a monarchy? What's wrong with the monarchy? The issue is power. How can we give that much power and reign to one person, one human, one individual? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. And so we might think of Karl Marx or 
various critical theories that critique the power dynamic of the oppressor and the oppressed. But however you want to analyze it, whatever framework you want to employ to look at the issue of human power, our concern is that ultimately delegating too much power to one person is dangerous. It produces villainy and tyranny and what have you. But there's also a more personal level that we should examine and not just a political one. We're reluctant, deeply reluctant, to give power to someone, to give them rule and reign over our lives. Because as adults, we assume that nobody knows how to live our lives better than we do. Our culture says nobody knows what is true for your lived experience except for you. And we're products of our age, individuals of the Enlightenment, people who demand complete freedom and unquestionable um, freedom to do whatever we want to do and say whatever we want to say and live our truth however we deem it true. That's a product of our culture. And yet, with all this power, with all this freedom, study after study from psychology show that we consistently and frequently do not choose what is best for our own personal happiness. If you want to learn about that, look at Jonathan Haidt's work. So it's quite the predicament. We don't want to give power to someone else, and all this power we have to live however we please, we actually don't wield it very well for our own benefit. All of this goes back to the garden, to that first temptation. And while many things are at play in this original temptation between the serpent and Adam and Eve, one dimension of the temptation is power. The power of autonomy, the power of becoming like gods, ruling your own life. You know, the serpent casts suspicion upon God's use of power and simultaneously tempts Adam and Eve to take a hold of power. But in giving in to this temptation, something else happened. Just as the serpent, the devil, abused power in tempting these two people, humanity has ever since been culpable of abusing power and has been abused by power. You see, the, Paul, the, the fall helps us understand how deep-rooted our suspicion of power truly is. It goes back to the beginning. And sadly, we don't have to try hard to find abuses of power within politics, within the workplace, within our own families, within religion and spiritual areas. The abuse of power haunts our world because it laid the foundation of the world's brokenness. Yes, frameworks help us see more clearly how there are systematic ways in which power abuses people, but the fall helps us see that the struggle of power goes deeper. It's inherent to the human condition and our rebellion against God. So it's just worth asking, I think, if Jesus is king, can we trust him with power? If Jesus is king, can he have complete rule and reign over your life, over this community's life together? The philosopher Kierkegaard wrote a parable that helps us here. It's called The King and the Maiden. I'm not going to tell the whole thing. Here's my summary of it. Suppose 
there was a king who loved a humble maiden. And the king, he was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. So how could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist because no one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concludes Kierkegaard. It's only in love that the unequal can be made equal. So the king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. But it was no mere disguise. He took on a new identity. He renounced the throne to win her hand. What Kierkegaard expresses here in a parable is what the Apostle Paul proclaims in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or the Greek word is more like exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is how King Jesus uses his power. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself and died for us. This is not coercive power. This is not abusive power. This is the power of the sacrificial love of God. Only a revelation of God's love for us can foster in us a genuine abiding love and trust in him, a willingness to surrender to his power as king. See, there's an alternative here for us. You know, instead of being part-time Christians, pigs at the trough of life, we can become joyful sheepdogs. Yes, the upgrade is just from pig to dog, but hear me out. Here's what Evelyn Underhill writes in one of her books in such a wonderful way. The sheepdog was docile and faithful, agent of another mind. He used his whole intelligence and initiative but always in obedience to his master's directive will and was ever prompt at self-effacement. The little mountain sheep he had to deal with were exceedingly tiresome. Just for context, she's talking about ministers and their relationship to the church, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) The little mountain sheep he had to deal with were exceedingly tiresome, expert in doubting and twisting and going the wrong way as any naughty little boy. Even so... The dog went steadily on with it. His tail never ceased to wag. But the sheepdog would not have kept that peculiar and intimate relationship unless 
he had sat down and looked at the shepherd a good deal. If we do not do the things Jesus asks us to do, not always, but often, I think here's what's going on. We have not sat down and looked at him a great deal. A revelation of his love. The love of a king for his people. The love that descends and sacrifices for us. It will change us so that our tails will never cease to wag and we'll do what he says. We will likely always struggle with being part-time Christians. But if this is a struggle, if you're aware of it, it's also a sign of grace at work in your life. You wouldn't be frustrated with being a part-time Christian unless you had a sense of God's love for you and what he has available for you, what he offers and promises to you. That frustration is indeed a sign of God's love at work in your life. So we can, at the very least, become part-time Christians, on our way to quarter-time Christians, who have an eagerness to see Jesus overcome these things in us that resist his will. People whose tail wag at the prospect of just doing what he says more and more, even if we struggle to do that in every moment. People who are excited to do his will because we know His use of power over our lives is always, always, always for our ultimate good, the good of those around us, and for the good of the whole cosmos. His will is always better than our own. And so the point of this passage is told in the parable. We have to decide how we're going to build our lives. Let's just say it from this point on. In the pandemic, because we're not through the pandemic, are we? We're in phase 4.A6B9. I don't know. But we're still in it. But I'm pretty sure as a church, this is where we go from. This wonderful room of people who are here, eager to do life together in the mess of this. People online who don't yet feel ready but are eager to be here. We have to ask ourselves this question. How will we build our lives? Doing what we want or doing what Jesus says? So turn your attention to verses 47 through 49. Here's the parable Jesus lays before us. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and And could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is an important aside, but it is an aside. Jesus assumes that storms will come for everyone. The faithful and faithless alike. There is no promise that if you follow Jesus, that your life will be smooth sailing and that you'll avoid all trouble. Any theology that suggests otherwise is heresy and fails to grapple with what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible says trouble and toil and difficulty will come for us all, and so will blessing amidst that trouble. And so the question here is this. 
Will you have a foundation to survive the troubles? That's what Jesus wants to know. Or will they sweep you away? When life falls apart, when dreams shadow, when the shadow of the valley of death looms over those you love or even yourself, will your faith survive? And beyond the troubles we face in this life, when you face death and the judgment that we will all face at the end of time, will you have laid a foundation that can survive death and judgment? That's the question. That's the question Jesus has for us. And he says, if you have no foundation, if you do not do what he says, your life will easily be swept away, perhaps by the trial and the struggles and the toil of it all, and most certainly at death and judgment. And so it doesn't matter if you said, Lord, and, Lord, because, and didn't do what he said. Because as Jesus says in another parable, you're going to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because your words were empty. They weren't a cry from your knees, a recognition of your king. They were an idea, a thought, but nothing more. Empty, foundationless. This is what Christ says. It's like staying at the Empress Hotel, if you can believe it or not. You can indulge in its luxury and history. You can be a young teen on a scavenger hunt, stealing towels from the Empress. I don't know anyone who did that. You might be there and marvel at its architectural beauty. Have you been? The halls are remarkable. The tea, fantastic. The views, stunning. Go stay at the Empress if you want to die during an earthquake. Because not many people realize this. The Empress is not built on a rock, but on embayment. My dad's whole career was earthquake fixing the Empress. And he would be like, don't go to the Empress. Don't go there. It's going to fall over. We can stand and marvel at the human ingenuity and accomplish that is the empress. And all this while be oblivious to the fact that a serious storm, the big one, will bring her crumbling down. If you do not give your allegiance to Jesus, you will give it to something. Goals, ambition, career, wealth, appearance, relationship, whatever. You'll build and fill up your life. And you might even succeed at it. Or you might not. But whatever you attain, it will have no lasting foundation. It will be swept away. It will end up in the ash heap of eternity if it's built apart from Christ. Now, as I've been saying, there's an alternative. Jesus says, you can dig down deep. I love that. Dig down deep. Work through the topsoil. Get through the clay. Hit the rock, an immovable foundation, well beneath the surface. Dig down deep. It's going to take work, people. According to Jesus, we hit this foundation when our hearing is married to our doing. By confessing that he's king and giving our allegiance to his ways. And this is how we can have assurance, according to Jesus, that our lives won't be easily swept away when trouble comes in this life and when we face death and judgment in the life to come. Now, I, I want to put a caveat here because I know all of a sudden this might sound like we're saved by what we do, by our efforts and our works. But Scripture is never shy about calling us to grace and action. On the one hand, the Apostle Paul declares... We are justified. We're set right by grace through faith. In other words, there's nothing we could do 
to merit what God has done for us in Christ. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves because Jesus has done everything to save us. It is a complete gift of grace. You can't earn it. Simultaneously, James in his letter says, faith without works is dead. And so these aren't contradictions. This is just the full picture of what real saving grace does. If you receive this glorious gift of grace, if you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, it changes you. Because salvation is not only about the forgiveness of sins, but about new lives and even a new creation. Grace is a gift that when it's in your hands, you can either wear it or put it down, but you can't just hold it. And if you wear it, Freedom. It's freedom. It's not pressure, but it takes effort. Jesus expects genuine change in our lives. Later in Luke, he even says, Blessed, so it's well with, blessed are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. It's not enough to be hearers without being doers, as I've prayed after every sermon in this place. Jesus wants hearing and doing to be together. And Jesus actually expects us to do what he says. Love your enemies, people. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing in return. That one's hard, isn't it? I've been lending my parents, like, guest suite to other people. I don't own that guest suite, but I feel like they owe me now. What is that about? Lend, expecting nothing in return. Judge not. Don't judge me for that. You can be discerning about it, but don't judge me. Condemn not. Forgive. Give. Bear the fruit of repentance. All of these things Jesus tells us to do, they're not the basis of our salvation, they're the fruit of it. They're not the basis of our salvation, they're the fruit of it. It's grace taking root in us and growing out of us. And it's not easy. It actually takes effort and hard work. As Dallas Willard famously said, grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. Toil, work, sweat, effort. These are all images of discipleship in the New Testament. And anyone who's consistently tried to put what the words of Jesus in Scripture into practice knows this is true. It's not always easy to stay on the phone with someone who's distressed or to befriend the highly needy or broken who can't see beyond themselves and their brokenness. It's not easy to eschew greed for moderation or to sacrifice in a season rather than save or to avoid gossip or to maintain sexual purity or to sustain daily prayer and contemplation, let alone proclaim the gospel in a culture that highlights the failures of Christianity over and against its lasting contributions, a culture that has little to no interest in what we believe. None of this is easy, is it? But we're not left to strive alone. That's what I want you to hear. Yes, we have to toil and sweat and work and put in the effort, but the spirit of the living God, of King Jesus himself, will dwell in your heart through faith and strengthen you with power to actually do what he says. So here's my question. What would it look like for you to do what Jesus says? What would it look like in your life? What would it look like for your relationships, for the community or neighborhood you're in? What would it look like if you stopped waiting for someone else 
to serve the poor. What would it look like if you swallowed your pride and finally asked for forgiveness? What would it look like to lay down the grudge and forgive? What would it look like if you started every day with Jesus and his word? What would it look like if you put aside your agenda, your to-do list of most importance, your causes, and to pick up the cause of Jesus and to actually do what he asks of us and to do it over and sometimes against the things you think are more important? What would it look like to give your allegiance to King Jesus and in your real life, however long it may be, to devote yourself first and foremost to doing his will as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. It won't be easy, but Jesus says you'll be digging a foundation that will survive the storms because you'll have built your life upon him, the rock, and you'll have laid that foundation by doing what he says. So if we believe that Jesus is king, we must do what he says. There's no way about it. But we don't do this out of fear of his power, although God is worthy of our fear. We do what Jesus says out of joy of his love for us. He's the prince who left the throne, the king who became nothing, so we can become like sheepdogs with wagging tails. We're invited to be citizens of this kingdom, friends. We're invited to be ambassadors of this way, disciples. One way of thinking about it, and this is the last thing I'm going to offer, Think of your following of Jesus as an apprenticeship. You want to do what Jesus says, and so you refine the craft of following him through time and repetition. So when Jesus says something, you try to do it, and you might not get it right, but Jesus isn't asking for sinless perfection. He's just asking for us to try, to walk with him. And like apprentices, the more time we spend with our master doing what he says, the better and better we'll get at the craft. Because our king, our king descended to be with us because he loves us and he's going to walk with us every step of the way so that we can actually do what he asks. Let's pray.